Mr. Poetry Bandit. How are you? How you doing? I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? No complaints, man. And, you know, we were just talking about blueberries and how grateful I am to have <laughs> have blueberries in my life. <laughs> what's, a, what's a food that, that you love? My favorite food has got to be raspberries. And that's... Um, and I don't say that just because you said blueberries, but growing up, my grandfather uh, owned one of the largest raspberry fields um, in a small town called Abbotsford, British Columbia, and uh, he employed a lot of people. And I remember going there in the summers as a kid, and he would just let me walk through the fields unencumbered, just eating as many raspberries as I want. And every time I have one, it doesn't matter where it comes from in the world. It just reminds me of my grandfather and and uh, it's just got a huge nostalgic tie for me. And I I don't know, I just, I could never think of any, any other food. It's always the first food that comes to mind when people ask me, what's your favorite food? Is raspberry. So perfect, perfect, uh, let's go with a dinner meal. Perfect dinner meal for you. Uh, what would that look like? Give me your, give me your appetizer. Give me your entree, um, and then give me your dessert. Ooh, okay. Appetizers. Uh, I gotta go with. Uh, I gotta go with oysters. I I love just you know. Give me twelve different oysters from different parts of the world, or from you know, in the province of BC. Here, we've got a lot of great oyster farms off the coast of British Columbia, and so it's it's pretty easy to find it ridiculously delicious oysters and i know a lot of people say oh well you know you can always just eat your own mucus uh that's that's nice you could do that too but i don't know man like oysters are awesome i love them and you put a little bit of tabasco in there and some horseradish and um it's great that's that's my ideal appetizer and then i follow that up with uh, a seven ounce filet mignon with a little bit of uh whatever reduction it doesn't matter it's the steak medium rare you know, it's got to be a little bit red. It's that's what I like. That's I don't eat a lot of steak, but if I'm going out, it's usually what I'm getting with a side of some fresh uh, asparagus or or broccoli. It, you know, just uh, not too much carbs on that plate, but uh, yeah, just some veg and some uh, and a, and a and a nicely done steak and a dessert. Oh man. I don't know. Like, how about like uh, uh, an apple crumble mm. with hey. some ice cream on top? Mm. Yeah, that that'd be good. Well, I must say we're we're definitely gonna have to grab dinner. Uh, <laughs> yes, man. <laughs> definitely gonna have to grab dinner. Uh, so you grew up? Have you lived your whole life in BC? I have like well pretty much I mean I moved here when I was a kid when I was about six years old and the only reason we came back was because my grandfather got sober so my mom had told my grandfather there was no way he was ever going to meet us if he didn't get sober and um, yeah he did so we moved here when I was like five or six years old I guess and uh, yeah I've been here ever since and uh, you know I love living on this side of the Rockies it's uh it's a province that doesn't see a lot of snow where I live. Um, so it, it, it gets a lot of rain, you know, very similar climate to Seattle. We're just three hours north of Seattle. And um, so a lot of rain, you know, seven, eight months out of the year. 
and then the rest of sunshine it's uh gets pretty pretty nice here in the summer so can't complain it, it never have felt like i needed to go anywhere else if you did move where would you go oh it would be a uh, toss-up between uh i'd like to give new york a go i don't know why um but there's just something about the city that brings out uh um a certain creativity and other people that I've seen move there and live there. I wouldn't mind giving that a try, but I, I think if I didn't have much of a choice, I, I'd go and live in New Zealand. Mm. And uh, I, I was there for two months when I finished university, I got to travel a little bit. Uh, great blessing I had. And um, yeah, I spent two months there touring the entire both islands and uh, just loved it there. I fell in love with the culture, with the people, um, with the safety of, uh, of the country and um you know other than them being on a giant earthquake vault i mean perfect place in the world <laughs> when you say the safety of the country what does that mean um i'll give you an example uh i i bought a small van when i was there from a couple of americans and uh, who had just finished touring up and i met them in the airport and they sold me the van just like boom right there and gave them some cash and away they went and away I went. And I drove around the North and the South Island, uh, just staying wherever I wanted to. And along the way I would pick people up <clears throat> and hitchhiking was kind of foreign to me living in, you know, predominantly North American culture where hitchhiking was always tied to, you know, crazy serial killer stories or a fairly negative vibe from, you know, people who would need it to hitchhike. And I, I, I don't know. I just felt like it, nothing could stop me from pulling over and picking somebody up. Like automatically there was this unadulterated trust. And I remember once I picked up this elderly gentleman who needed a ride and he was so appreciative of me driving him just literally, I don't know, the equivalent of maybe 10 blocks and he gave me the key to his cabin in another town that I was heading to next. And he said, here's the key to my cabin. Just slip it under the doormat when I when you're done. Help yourself to anything that you want. I just ask you to keep it neat and tidy. And I was like, holy crap. So I stayed in this guy's cabin for like, I didn't want to overstay my welcome. welcome. I, I stayed for maybe three days. Um, kept it neat and tidy. Replenished any groceries I used, even though he didn't ask me to. But... I mean, where else would that ever happen? Like, def like even Canada's a friendly nation, but no one's going to give you the key to their house. Like, that's unheard of. But, you know, I tell this story to followers of mine that are from New Zealand, and they go, oh, yeah, my, my, my dad would do that. My grandfather would do that. I would do that. Like, it's just, uh, I don't know. When I say the safety of the, of the feeling I had was just like, I could be home. I could live here and I could never lock my doors. I don't think anybody in New Zealand locks their doors, you know, and that's just something that uh, seems so foreign to me. And I, I loved feeling that when I was there. Yeah, I just looked it up. It says that there are, well, I saw a couple of things I, when I Googled New Zealand. So the first is the population is uh, 4.8 million. That's as of uh, 2018. So that's a relatively yeah. small country. I mean, even yeah. the state of Arizona where I live, we have 7 million people. So it's yeah. it's like insane to even think about that a state in America has more 
citizens than a country of New Zealand. Kind of, yeah. well, kind of put Canada in perspective. Yeah, Canada's got like I think it's thirty nine million people now, and I think California has way more than that. <laughs> yeah, I think California is like forty two million. Yeah, yeah. Think wow. about that. All Dude. the people in Canada crammed into California. That's insane when you think about it, you know, especially for anyone who's traveled to California and seen. I mean, California is one of the most beautiful states in America. Absolutely. To think that all of Canada lives there, you know, that is insane. (laughs) Yeah, man. And, you know, another interesting fact about Canada is like there's a huge percentage of our population that lives within a two, three hour trip of the border. Right. Most of the people live close to the border. Um, so like there's a there's a saying up here, like when um, like living next to the United States is like uh, laying next to an elephant in bed. Right. If 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 America moves, makes a move, we feel it up here. Right. Because how could you not? Right. So the economy takes a hit down there. We're going to feel it up here. I've always felt like. Canada and the United States are a lot more connected than we really realize. You know, I yeah, had absolutely. Um, I had Mark, Mark Groves on the podcast last week. You know, he's from Vancouver. And yeah, I know Mark. Yeah, yeah, he was just he was talking about, you know, the Pentagon. And in my mind, I'm like, this Canadian is talking about the Pentagon, which is, you know, an American, you know, intelligence agency. Yeah. But he was just talking about it like he was just another American. I'm like, wow, this is then I started talking to him about uh, Justin Trudeau. And I'm just like, how do I even know Justin Trudeau? Like, I don't know all the leaders in the world, (laughs) but I know Justin Trudeau, you know? Yeah. 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 And he's probably the first prime minister that we've had that people could just go, oh, yeah, he's the prime minister of Canada. Like he's the first prime minister or leader we've ever had that's gone out publicly and and made some important social statements that have caught people's eye and, and and rightly so i mean it was about time we kind of came out of the uh the shadows in certain areas and you know i'm thankful for a leader that's not afraid to you know make certain claims and and uh stand up and you know you know stand up for the country and and for himself and so i i get that about mark and and i know mark and i've had this and and not to like feed the stereotype that all Canadians know each other, but I've had the pleasure of meeting Mark a couple of times and, and having some good chats with him. And, and that's, uh, that's something about Canadians is we know a lot about the, the Americans and, and your history. And like, I have a friend that can name off, you know, every capital city of every state. And my son can do that. He has autism and he loves facts and he loves geography and um, it, it's something that I, we spend an unusual amount of time on in school is American history and the way that it works down there. And I think that's good. I think I think uh, it's important to know who your neighbors are. Uh, it would be great if America did the same thing and, and taught us <laughs> about uh, Mexico and Canada. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like <laughs> honestly, it's like just, just speaking on school for us, it was more like. This is American history. These are American value. We're the greatest of all time, and we're going to always be the greatest. It, it's very like uh, it it creates such a narrow view of the world where it's like you're not mm-hmm. willing to see what else is going on. You're not willing to 
to travel, you know, and like, you got to think about, we were just talking about California. California is such a great state. There's millions of people who were born in California and have never even left California, you know, and in America, yeah, I've I feel heard like that. a lot of people are that way. You know, I come from Chicago, Illinois. Um, that's the third largest city in the country. And, you know, a lot of people won't travel like they won't leave. They just get stuck in their city and it's just like, that's it for them. But me, it's, I'm I'm not wow. up there. I'm more of I want to see yeah. what else is going on in the world. You know, I'm very curious to other cultures, the way other like even what you mentioning uh, hitchhiking and you're like, you know, this is yeah. such a foreign thing to the North American mindset. And it is. As soon as you said hitchhiking, I was like, whoa, don't do that. Don't do that. But you're like, no, we're in New Zealand. I'm picking up people. It's all good. And I love that. Yeah. expansion, you know, that expansion of the mind. Yeah, man. And uh, when I think about my travels, I think about, you know, one time I picked up a hitchhiker and he was an Israeli and I had an opportunity to ask him all the questions that I've had about Israel and Palestine and what's really going on there. And because we get a, we get a very sieved view of that part of the world in our media and so it was really cool to ask him all these questions and you know at the end of it realize that this guy really didn't have a problem with the palestinians himself that he you know he had you know everybody in that country at a certain age has to enroll in the army i believe and um and i want to be careful not to say any facts that are old but this was back in 2002 so you know so you know information is going to be dated but on that but the next guy I picked up was from Palestine. <laughs> so wow. I bring this guy to where he wants to go. And then the next guy I meet in a hostel that needs to get somewhere is from Palestine. And and so just the wide range of people that I got to um, visit with and meet and, you know, a number of the people that uh, I think about regularly from that trip are from uh, places like, you know, England, Germany, the United States, um, yeah, I even met. I'm, I'm of all people. I met a guy that I used to play street hockey with here in my hometown, in the wow. middle of like <laughs> Auckland, and uh, you know, just through talking, we didn't recognize each other. But um, yeah, just crazy stuff like that. And I miss that about traveling now. You know, I've got three kids, and I got the job, and all this kind of stuff to do. And you know, I'm hoping to travel more again if that ever becomes a reality. So three kids. What are your What are your kids' ages? Uh, well, I've got uh, Robin is thirteen. Uh, she's in grade eight, and then I have a boy, Jason. He is ten, going on eleven uh, in grade five, and then Josephine is uh, going to be eight next month, and she's in grade two. Those are just beautiful names. Absolutely. We, uh, my ex and I, when we had our kids, we spent a lot of time thinking on, you know, names like this is going to be important, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I love I love all their names. I, I just every time they are who they are and acting the way they are, it's like, yep, yeah, that name fits that kid. <laughs> Mr. Poetry Bandit, how did That's you become? Man. How did you become John the Poetry Bandit? Where 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 did that start? What are your origins? Well, it was twenty fourteen. Um, and as you know, uh, at the time I was, uh, I was married to Rose and Rose was, um, 
just going through a lot herself. Uh, we had a couple miscarriages between our second and third child. She was diagnosed with bipolar two. Uh, there was a lot of uh, scare around that, and that's a whole story in its own right. But um, you know, during that time, I had been drinking a lot as well. Um, alcoholism runs in my family, and uh, I was knee deep in that addiction at the time. And uh, leading up to 2014, I was a director of sales for a large insurance brokerage. I ran a winery insurance program. I mean, what a great idea for an alcoholic to just get free booze, right? But that's what I was doing. And uh, I was away a lot. And, uh, you know, I had some blackout moments in the city where I disappeared for 10 hours at a time. Nobody knew where I was. And that that started to happen with a little more frequency. And um, Rose said to me, like, you got to do something about this. And this was like December 20. No, this was December 2013. So 2014, I started off. Yeah, I'm going to get sober. I'm going to deal with my shit. And I'm going to I'm going to make going to make this work. And I got maybe a few months in relapsed. I kept relapsing like it was a constant thing. And what, 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 at some what, point, was, what was causing you to like keep relapsing? Well, um, I don't want to get too far into that reason because it's uh, still part of the story that has to happen yet. But, um, you know, there were things in the marriage that weren't right. Um, there were things that uh, were happening that I wasn't happy about, um, that Rose wasn't happy about. Drinking was a part of that. Uh, she had made some choices that uh, made me feel hurt and I couldn't I couldn't deal with that like I didn't have any tools to deal with that emotionally so I just kept um, guilt tripping her into allowing me to drink and so because at the time I was trying to drink I was trying to stop drinking for other people and that was my that was a big mistake so I, I kept relapsing when I couldn't deal with it and uh, or she couldn't deal with it and she would just say go fine whatever and so things were pretty tense between us then. And uh, I felt sometimes that booze brought us together and <laughs> just stupid. But that was how I felt at the time. So I kept uh, I kept going back to the bottle. And um, around October, um, I gave it another shot. But around this time, Rose came home with a typewriter and she was going to start writing and she was going to start sharing her work and use that as a way to cope with everything that was going on in her life and i thought cool go for it and i'd lay back down on the couch and hold a pity party for myself and a few nights after she had come home with that typewriter she said listen give a shot give it a shot start an instagram account start sharing your work you used to write beautiful poetry now you just sit there on the couch like a like a bum so, you know, do something. So I did. I have her to thank. And I started writing. I uh, started my first Instagram account, October 2014. It was called, I called myself the hopeless loser. And if you search that hashtag, you might still find a couple of my old stuff, uh, old poems out there. But um, as slowly but surely, as I started to share, I realized that this plat there was this platform at the time was really great for finding other people that were going through the same thing I was going through. Uh, I hooked up with some people uh, that uh, like men and women that were trying to get sober as well and sharing par parts of their heart 
art of their of their heart pieces of their thinking and their struggles and i was like wow okay there are other people out there just like me and i met a, a lady now her name is laura McEwen, and she's got a new york times bestseller on her hands uh called we are the luckiest and she was one of the first people that kind of smacked me in the face and said it's time for you to smarten up um you know get yourself to a recovery meeting and uh give that a shot because you know even though i started this page i was still not getting it i was still maybe getting a few weeks in and then failing and one time while i was still writing and sharing uh I kept, I blacked out and it was a really bad one. And I think there's a, uh, there's a gentleman's club in Vancouver that will not allow someone with my face into their establishment. <laughs> so it was getting really bad. Like when I drank, I became a different person. It just wasn't who I was and I was making really bad choices. So every time I relapsed, things got worse and it got, uh, it got really bad. So I came back to the writing um, with a newfound idea in early 2015, I was going to change my name and I was going to make the page about my sobriety, purely about sharing that journey, not just writing for likes and comments and things like that and trying to get somebody to share my work, but I was going to just dig down deep and start sharing parts of my soul and part vulnerable parts of me. So I changed my name to the Poetry Bandit because I felt like I was stealing my love of writing back from my addiction. And because prior to this, I was a singer songwriter. I had written a fantasy novel. It's like 900 pages. I have two screenplays under my belt. Uh, I wrote poetry for my ex-wife. I wrote uh, music with my dad. Uh, I was always writing and always creating. And then when I started drinking heavily in 2007, 2008, right up until 2014, 2015, uh, I had lost all, um, I had lost all of that creative energy. I just put it all into drinking, sitting around doing nothing. And I remember it was July 29th, 2015, standing in my kitchen. It was 11 o'clock on a Saturday and I looked out the window and I saw my kids playing in the cul-de-sac and I was like, hmm, I should be out there playing with my kids, not sitting inside in the morning, pouring myself a glass of wine. Like, what is this? This is, this is it. And I poured all the wine down the drain. I poured all my whiskey down the drain. I poured all the beer. I threw it all out, all the paraphernalia, all the glasses, everything. I just, I went hardcore. I threw everything out. And, um, I jumped in the car. I didn't even play with the kids. Actually, I jumped in the car and I went to a recovery meeting cause I knew that's what I needed to do first. And that was my last, uh, I didn't even have a drink that day, but I've made that day. My sobriety day does the decision day to quit drinking. And so that's kind of how the poetry bandit became to be is through this desire to get sober. But then as I, continue to write with that newfound hope and that newfound purpose, it became more about helping other people. And so like, even today, I'll have two or three messages in my inbox on Instagram from people who know someone who needs to get sober, or they want to get sober. 
and they don't know how to do it or they've tried everything and they just need help. And that's why I'm here today um, because nothing makes me feel more connected to my own sobriety than helping someone else. Before we go any further, uh, I want to thank you for sharing what you're sharing thus far. You know, here on the Free Energy Podcast, we, I mean, we have talked about a lot, a lot of very, very deep and, and personal stories. And, you know, people have came on here and cried. And it's an honor for me uh, as a creator to, like, share this space uh, where we're just creating conversation, just honest, genuine conversation. So I just want to thank you and acknowledge you for being willing to share your story, not only here on this platform, but also on your own Uh when you Thanks, made that decision, and you said, okay, I'm going to a meeting. What was that meeting like? Can you describe that for us for people, you know, maybe someone's listening and they want to follow in your footsteps and maybe they just need a visualization of what the, the meeting is like. Like what, what is it actually like? Uh, and thanks for asking that. Not, not, not a lot of people do. Um, but the first meeting is scary. Like well, driving up to the first meeting is scary because <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, like it wasn't the first time I had gone to a meeting. I, I had tried once before a year earlier and I walked in and I sat down and some of the guys that sat beside me in this meeting, they were miserable. And I was like, oh, I guess this isn't for me. But what I, ref- what I, what I did not acknowledge is that not everybody in a meeting is always not just because you get sober doesn't mean life stops happening to you that things that are terrible stop happening in your life what you're given in the meetings is an ability to deal with it and so not everybody has to be super happy and full of laughter um you know there are some people in in my meeting that are definitely like that and i love those people and they need to be in meetings so that other people can see that but i also appreciate the people who are struggling and so my first meeting I went to, uh, the mistake I made was not going back. And they say in the meetings, you know, keep coming back because for that exact reason, you could go, could be a bad meeting, could be a meeting that triggers you. It could be a meeting that is uh, difficult uh, to hear. The next meeting could be exactly the opposite. Lots of happy people, lots of laughs. And the when I decided to pour all that booze down the sink and go and make a commitment to my sobriety, um, that meeting was completely different than the one I walked out of a year earlier. Uh, it was full of old timers, uh, just, you know, slapping each other's backs and giving each other a hard time jokingly and, um, you know, have, having a grand old time and, uh, there were people shaking hands and welcoming me to the meeting. And I f- immediately, all the anxiety I had from the point of getting in my car and actually showing up and walking to the front door was gone. And the first thing I did, um, you know, they say a couple of things when you get to a recovery meeting, there's a few things you should do. Number one, uh, find someone to hold on to, like a sponsor or a temporary sponsor or someone who can walk alongside you, um, get a, get a book, you know, read the material, um, you know, volunteer or allow yourself to be voluntold to get involved and, um, and just keep going. And so 
when the first thing I did is I, I, I knew those were the things that I had to do from the first meeting I went to uh, the year earlier. So the first thing I did was I volunteered to be the door greeter. So I would have to go to every meeting, but I would be the guy welcoming people, shaking hands, giving out the hugs, you know, saying, thanks for coming. And I was so thankful that somebody suggested that I do that because it gave me the opportunity to get out of my own world and help somebody out. And even if that was just a handshake or making them feel like how I felt when I walked in again, um, you know, that, that was such a key moment and such a key to my sobriety. Early sobriety absolutely was just making somebody feel welcome. We have a connected story through alcohol, alcoholism. You know, the reason I became a writer was actually because of alcohol. But really, yeah, it was not because of me. It was because my my both of my parents are alcoholics. Oh, I didn't my know mother, that. Yeah, my mother her 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 drink was MGD. She would drink a Miller mm-hmm. Genuine Draft six pack every single night. Wow. Every every single night, six pack. And I mean, she wouldn't even eat. You know how some fitness people are like, hey, I'm going to do one meal a day. And, you know, she she would barely do that. Like she she would be so frail and so skinny and so like, you know, lean is usually a word you use when you're referring to a healthy person who has yes. you know, muscle mass. She wasn't lean. She was just frail. And she's alive still. She's she's frail and skinny. And, and she may hear this because she listens to my podcast. And my father, he passed away right around the time when you started writing. He passed in 2014. So it was his DUI that he got that was really, really like the catalyst for my mother and father uh, separating when we were younger. And very similar to your story where there's three, three, uh, three kids and I was the oldest and I was trying to understand what my parents were going through. I was trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together because it's like as a kid you're aware and you're intuitive at least for me I was intuitive enough to see what was happening but mm-hmm. I didn't really understand the back end I wasn't really getting the details like they weren't telling me the story yeah. so I be- began writing to figure out that story to figure out why they were talking to each other the way they were talking to each other why my dad had pretty much two moods where he was you know very authoritative boss leader and then he had another move where he was glossy eyed, yellow eyed, playful, joyful, but he only tapped into that move when he came out of the room and he would be in his room by himself, with the door closed for like an hour. Yeah. So I'm like, how is it like, how is this person transforming? And then, you know, what, what happened is I was responsible for taking out the garbage. So when I would be taking out the garbage, one day I decided to look through it and like, I would look through it and I would just see Jack Daniels and you know, all this whiskey and wine and beer. And I'm just like, dude, all they do is drink. And that's really what started me becoming a writer is me trying to understand what was going on with my family and uh, understanding my own thoughts. And I became, I became writing, became a writer. And uh, one of my commitments actually has been to make sure that I never write any of my words under the influence of alcohol, because it literally came from that. Yeah, it literally came from that. So what what did you 
I hope this question is okay to ask. Um, but yeah. what, when you were drinking, what were you drinking? Oh yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for sharing that with me. I, I, I know it's never easy talking about, you know, alcohol and, and family members. And, um, you know, I just want to, I want to say thank you because it's, uh, it means a lot to me when people share with me, um, how alcohol has affected them and, you know, just, uh, encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, I love you for it. Uh, but I was into wine, like that was my thing. Um, and growing up, my parents, we were pretty poor. Like my parents didn't have any liquor in the house growing up. Um, it wasn't until things started to, uh, get better. And, uh, you know, my parents ability to, afford other things became, uh, you know, we still then like my parents didn't drink a lot at home and, and I, I didn't really. So when I was looking back on like how I got into this, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't blame anybody. <laughs> so, um, you know, like most teenagers, I, I drank beer when everybody else did. Uh, I didn't drink alone. Uh, I, I didn't really get, uh, hammered at parties. I was usually the DD. Um, but I, I did get drunk every once in a while with, with friends and um but that was like I could count those times in one hand in a year so I never really saw myself as a as a problem drinker when I was growing up but when I hit my 30s and I had a family and I was uh in charge of people at work and I was you know six figure salary and two cars and a house and blah 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 and on and on it goes I just there was a lot of stress and I couldn't figure out why I was so obsessed with alcohol at that time and so I would drink wine I I would I, I created this winery insurance program and in, in British Columbia, there's about 180 wineries. And, uh, I became a student of this, of, of the craft. And I, uh, started off with one winery in 2007. And then before I quit that job in 2014, I think we had 130 wineries. So I was good at my job and, uh, I was really good at, you know, uh, buying their wine and supporting that industry is near the end. I was drinking two to three bottles of wine every day. We start at lunch, liquid lunch in the industry, in the insurance industry, you know, starts at 11, finishes at two. And then you'd go back to work and pretend to work for half an hour and then go back out, meet somebody else for a glass of wine or whatever. Come home at dinner, drink more wine with dinner, put the kids to bed, crack open another two bottles, 11 o'clock rolls around. Oh, liquor stores open for five more minutes. Go get some more. Like ridiculous. It was every night, and that became exhausting. But it became a pattern, and I just stuck with it. And um, you know, I would hide and lie about how much I had had at work, and um, but it was I couldn't get enough of that red wine. It was always that was my thing. It doesn't trigger me to date, uh, but within the first year of quitting, it was definitely a trigger. So always thankful to my ex for, you know, quitting at the same time that I did to help me at home. That, that meant a lot to me and it was the right thing for her to do. It's so powerful when, you know, you, you thank me for sharing what I share, but I feel like the, you know, it's hard at first, but the more comfortable you get with sharing your journey, sharing your story, and the more compassion you have for yourself as you share, I feel like you heal more and more each day, each day. And I feel yeah, like you friend. also get more control of your journey because you start to, as you talk about your own story, you start to understand like, okay, I have 
automatic behaviors that I'm doing. And that's, I'm not talking about my journey. But then when mm -hmm. I talk about my story and my journey, now those behaviors are not automatic because I'm asking questions. Why am I yeah. doing this? How is this making me feel? What is the feedback from these choices? It's no longer just an autonomous thing. Yeah. And like when I hear that also your wife, uh, your ex-wife, I'm sorry, joined you at that time, like that is, bro, that is such an amazing thing to, to have support, you know? Yeah. And yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. Like when I talk to some people that the other spouse refuses to quit uh, in support and it blows my mind because I'm thinking, well, you're, your family unit, right? Like, um, and at the time, yeah, we were a family unit and we did things together. And, um, you know, if, if you're trying to, it's no different if you ask someone to quit doing heroin or meth, like you wouldn't lay, let leave drugs laying around. You wouldn't leave anything laying around if that was going to tempt that person from being able to succeed. Like your first, until the obsession leaves you, like up until that time, it's key to receive the maximum amount of support from the people in your social circle, you know, um, and that's why I came out right away and told everybody in my life that I was an alcoholic and I was going to quit drinking. And even though some people were like, well, that's going to be hard for me to invite you over and because we drink here and it's like, fine, then don't invite me. It, you know, it, it, I'm not I'm not asking you to change your life, you know, part of dealing with my alcoholism is giving up control of other people, places and things. And so you do you, but just to let you know, if it's a party, I won't be there, you know? So it wasn't until I was like maybe sober a year to two years, I felt more comfortable going to parties and being around people drinking. But even to this day, somebody invites me out to a brewery and says that, you want to come, we know you don't drink, you can have a kombucha or something. It's like, you know what? I'm good. Like for me, going to a brewery is just, it's like sitting around an oak table. <laughs> and I can sit around my table over here, <laughs> but I don't know. It's, you know, I love going to restaurants. I can go out and eat. I can go to any restaurant. I could go to a bar or a pub if they got good food, but I don't go there to sit there for three hours and drink water. Like that's not interesting to me. Um, so it changes you and people don't know what to do with that. They don't know how to relate to you anymore. And I lost some friends and I lost connection with some people and that's okay. Like we had made our connection and our, and our friendship over booze. And so take that away. What do we got? We have nothing in common. <laughs> and so that's going to happen. And, and that's, that's okay. Like that's part of the journey. That's part of discovering who you are without a crutch. And one of the biggest things I had to realize um, was why I drank. Why did I, why could I not stop when I start? And a lot of people say, you have a disease. You have the inability to stop. But I also have what I found out. Um, and this is, you know, a lot of people quit, but they forget to involve their GP or their doctor in that process. Uh, the best thing I did was involve my doctor in the process. And, and you know, he recommended that uh, we do a mental health test. So, you know, a couple of times I went back there after a year or two of sobriety and we did a test and we threw a lot of discussion and uh, just, you know, I was at the end of my rope mentally. I Even though I was sober, I didn't feel happy. There were still things going on that I couldn't struggle with. And a lot of my readers will know this, that I struggle with OCD. 
and I received a diagnosis in 2017 of uh, severe OCD of the pure obsessive thinking type. And it's an actual classification of OCD. So I don't wash my hands like a million times. Um, even though I haven't touched a doorknob in a while, I, I am more of an obsessive thinker. So an obsessive thought could be a simple one, just a simple thought like um, my kid is coming over to pick up some milk, but the door's locked. She can't get in the house, someone might kidnap her, and then suddenly I'm Liam Neeson and taken trying to get my child back from, from a child smuggler. That is where my mind will go, and I can't control it. If I So I, I went on a medication actually in 2017 for it because it was debilitating. I wouldn't allow my kids to go outside. I was always cleaning to distract my mind. Um, you know, uh, I was not... I was not a healthy, sober individual at that time, but, um, you know, add therapy, add exercise and add seven and a half milligrams of Trintelix every day. And I feel I've been on that now for three years. I feel like my life is amazing. And I can go through something like saying to my wife at the time, Hey, is this really working out anymore? And she's saying, no, I think maybe we should, separate and be able to go through all of that and acknowledge my role in the whole process and say, yeah, I think you're right. Without crying, without breaking down, without running away, without drinking is an amazing feeling. And also a testament to how I've been able to heal myself over the last five years. Healing is a journey. Absolutely. It, it takes, it's not a, uh, it's not a light switch. You know, that's one of my quotes yeah. out of my care package book is healing mm -hmm. is not a light switch. You cannot just walk in the room, say, OK, I'm ready to heal. OK, I'm done. I'm healed. <laughs> it, it does. It's yeah. like it's like climbing a, a mountain. Like you just oh, have to yeah. keep taking steps and steps. And the more inclined you get, the more your freaking thighs are going to burn. The sun yeah. overhead, you're sweating. You just got to keep going. And then when you get to the top. You look over the edge and you go, oh, there's more. <laughs> yeah. Right? So let's, let's let's talk about, you mentioned being uh, having obsessive thoughts. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, wait a minute. This dude told me he wrote, a, what was it, a 900-page? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fantasy of novel. It was a <laughs> fantasy novel, like a Hobbit kind of a thing. Is it published? No, <laughs> it is full of horny teenager fantasy stuff. <laughs> Dude, I'm thinking to myself, as, to, as soon as you were talking about yeah. having like the obsessive thoughts and you're like, okay, the door is locked. Someone's going to kidnap my daughter. Then I got to go on this chase. I'm like, wow, this is going to be yeah. a great book, you know? Yes. And then I remembered, I was like, dude, he already told me he wrote a book. Yeah. Uh, you, you have three published books already, but then that, that fantasy novel, what's, what's going on with your fantasy novel? Are you going to put well, it you know out? What? That is something that I've received a lot of encouragement for lately. Like I've felt a little bit tapped out on the poetry stuff, not because like you and I both know as a, a, a you know, I think when you started, you were doing a lot of poetry. Um, and, and I was like, and I've been doing the same thing and I've been doing it a long time, but I'm at that point now in my journey where I've, I've healed through a lot of stuff and I'm ready for the next chapter in my life. And, and poetry will always be a part of that. But 
I, I've always loved to write stories and this fantasy novel is a big one and I would love to get back to it and finish it off. Like it is not even done and I would love to finish it. And it is an amazing journey. And, and there are a bunch of things I have to change because there are five jewels and they go in a book and it's very similar to the gauntlet in Avengers. And, <laughs> and, it, and there are certain things that just tie into so many things that I, that are in movies now where I'm like, okay, I got to change some, I got to change a few things up about this book. And um, it requires some work, but I, you know, that's, that's kind of what I did with my, my teenage, my adolescence was pouring those obsessive thoughts. Like, uh, you know, they never materialized out of nowhere when I hit my thirties and, and became a dad and a, and a director of sales and all this other kind of stuff. They were always there, but I always had art and, and, and writing and literature to pour them into. And then when I stopped and I turned to alcohol, that's when all of that went away and the thoughts just became amplified instead of having somewhere to go. And so, um, yeah, I think I just might pick that thing up again and try and finish it. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to give you some confirmation as an artist. And, you know, for me, when I was growing up, you know, I use writing one as a coping mechanism, but I also loved it. Or I also use it as a way, you know, I used to write letters to my girlfriends all the time. Yeah. I would just write letters all the time, you know, in high school, I would just write a letter. Uh, I would see my girlfriend in the passing period. I would just give her a letter, you know, um, I would be writing two or three letters a day, you know, and it would be short, you know, like a couple paragraphs, maybe, maybe a page or two. And then in college, same thing. I would just be writing letters, love letters. And, you know, I would be writing a lot of romance. And that was, that was a lot of what, and also I was writing a lot of like psychology, like what are, what are my parents doing? What is going on? Why is the household this way? And what ended up happening for me. So I started my Instagram account, October 2nd, uh, 2012. And my first book had came out. My first book was Success is a Choice, which was I wrote it while I was at my corporation still. I didn't leave my corporate job until 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I was sitting in the uh, in the lunch break and I was just thinking, like, man, how can I get this book out more? Um, and I wasn't on any social media because I just don't really like social media. And mm-hmm. what I what I realized was everyone's on social media. So I said, all right, well, hell, I'll just get on social media and I'll share my work. Maybe someone to pick it up. You know, like literally I just naively started like that. And when I started, like there was really the only writer I could think of that was really popular at the time was Arm Drake. And that right. was uh, the Kardashian shared his work to help him get his platform huge. So he was like he was literally like the biggest writer on the platform. You know, I remember that. Yeah. So I was like, hey, you know, I see this as an opportunity where no one's, you know, one's using this to share their word. So I just got on there every day. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to share. So at the time I was kind of I was coming out of a like toxic relationship and I was really asking myself, like, man, what type of woman do I want in my life? Like, because this, I remember this- your writing. I remember your writing. Like a lot of it was around that. And. I just, I connected with it, not because Rose was toxic or anything, but it was a new thing for me to read and to like, and to devour at, at that point in time. I loved it. Man, thank you. That And that was really the, the genesis of like, 
my writing career was I put out a book on success because I was winning. Like I was winning in my corporate mm-hmm. job and I was successful, but that wasn't even what I was really promoting. I guess when I first started on social media, I was really trying to figure out through poetry, like what type of woman I wanted to be with. Cause I, I needed some help, you know, uh, introspecting it. And so really yeah. it was like just an introspective thing for me. And my next book became the dear queen journey. And, you know, so like the next three books, they're kind of poetry based, kind of based in that, in that element, in that energy. Um, but what happened for me is, so I have eight books total. So when I got to my last three is free your energy care package and lust for life. So uh, I started writing lust for life in 2015, 2016. And I got in a relationship then, and it was a really healthy relationship. Yeah. And so when I got in a really healthy relationship, the one that I had been writing about trying to get in for a few years, I no longer wanted to write about it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I was like, "Uh, nope, I'm not writing about this anymore. I'm done with this. (laughs) Yeah. So then I realized I was like, okay, this is like a really good relationship, but there's still some things that I personally want to heal from. So that's when I started writing about healing. And when I did that, John, I kid you not, that is when my platform, like just, it just took off. Like when I went, yeah. when I got to 2016 and I started writing all of my thoughts on, on lust for life, healing, free your energy. And I've just been in this space for like the last three, four years. This yeah. is like, I mean, that's what I'm known for now. Like that is yes. how things took off. So when I hear you say you want to make that transition, my brother, you have to, like you have to, yeah. you have to allow yourself to grow, you know, and I started a novel too. My next quote unquote self-help book is called Loving Yourself Properly. It is going to be my last book where I'm telling people, hey, these are the stories and these are my ideas on anything around self-development. My 10th book is going to be a novel and it's going to be a romance novel. And it's going to be- I think you alluded to that. Uh, You posted a few things in your stories about the novel you were were working on. I love it. I wish- Novels are so great. Dude, we, we have to do it. We, as yeah. creators, we have to honor our creativity. We have to evolve with it. So let's talk about the three books that you have out because you sure. do have incredible books out already. Um, Thank I'll, you. Let you just, I'll let you just it, kind of lead the way. Tell us about your book. Thanks, bud. Um, so I've got my first book was self-published. Um, I put it together hastily in the early years of my sobriety in 2016 and I did a second edition with uh, with a consultant called uh, the self-publishing agency here in Vancouver and we redesigned it we made it a little bit thicker put some more poems in it uh, we redesigned it primarily to get it into bookstores and it's one of my proudest achievements um, follows a wounded bear and healing through the book and the moon uh, waxing and waning at the same time through the journey um, and there are, you know, roughly about 130 poems in this one and, um, primarily dealing with my, uh, with my journey out of, uh, out of alcoholism and dealing with my OCD and how it affected, uh, my relationship with my wife at the time. And that's um, my sober little moon. That's my sober little moon. Correct. Um, available on, uh, Amazon pretty much. That's the only place that's any kind of online bookstore is where you're going to be able to find it. I sell a few personalized copies here at home as well. Um, and then kind of like through my journey um, in 2018, uh, McMillan found me 
and they offered me a two book deal and they said, Hey, uh, we want to get into poetry and we, and, uh, We've tapped a few people on the shoulder and we, we want to share your journey and your story because we, we love how you share about it. And so the first book we did was called You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering. And uh, that one you can find in any Barnes and Noble, Books A Million. Um, it's it's everywhere you can find a good poetry book and, and online, of course. And it was a collection of poems that didn't really fit with my sober little moon. So I had set them aside for another book and I didn't know when I was going to get around to doing it. And then this opportunity fell in my lap and I was like, perfect. So I gave them this 180 poems in that one. And it really deals with all the emotions that you feel as you as you heal, as you get out of grief or as you get into grief and, and come out the other side. Um, I liken it to dancing a dirge, right? A sad dance people used to dance at at a funeral um way back when and then um we followed that one sold out a first print run in the first year uh which was really great because that's about five thousand copies and it continues to do really well um and the second book that i did with mcmillan so my third total is called encyclopedia of a broken heart and it's laid out like an encyclopedia from a to z uh, or Z if you're Canadian, <laughs> and there's a there's a there's a small amount of poems for each letter of the alphabet. And I'm telling you, Sly, when I when I wrote this book in January 2019, I had no idea what was driving it, the feelings that were driving this book. Um, I knew I, I wanted to write a book from scratch. Most of the poems here that you've never seen on my Instagram, uh, they're they they're mostly longer pieces, and um, I'm telling you, man, I didn't know why I was writing this book. And then in August of 2019, two months before the book came out, um, Rose and I decided to dissolve our 14-year marriage. And when the book came out in October, and she had already moved out by this time, and I got my first shipment, and I, I read through the book, and I just started crying and crying and crying. It was this big moment for me in my healing, uh, was realizing that I had written about this event eight months before it had happened mm. and almost every letter of the alphabet has a poem that is very hard for was very hard for me to read at the time but i forced myself to read it and i can read them no problem but i was like wow i really knew that this was going to happen there are poems like figure and hell and gauntlet and ghostly and like the i i can just and Xerox and Vampire you, you and have all these. Book near you? I have it right here in front of me. Yeah. Do read us, please. Read us something. All right, I'm going to read you Figure because this was the one that I read out loud to myself when I first got the book, and I was like, "Holy crap!" I prophesied this divorce. <laughs> um, so this is Figure, page 47 of Encyclopedia of a Broken Heart. Uh, Life without you is a figure in the dark. A darkness that follows me down every lit path, enveloping all good things, leaving the mark of the beast or what seems like a dastardly deed that has yet to be known. It's a catastrophe that hasn't happened yet, but it's on repeat in my mind. Every eye closed is an admission that I know it's an inevitability. But one day, I figure that specter of losing you will vanish and I'll be able to live with my future again. Yeah, gives me chills reading it now because, um, like, really, like, 
the chat about getting divorced or anything like that was, it wasn't even on the table in January when I was writing this in 2019, you know, I just, I didn't even think that it would ever, like, I don't know, like back then, I don't know. It just, it blows my mind. Can you share another one with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Some, not all of them uh, deal with uh, the prospect of losing somebody. Um, this one's called Rewind. I dream of a day when the blossoms stay as they are, a colorful cloud of pink and white, rays of sunshine upon it casting patterns of haphazard happiness. It's a delicate array of shimmering laughter caught by a breeze, but the blossoms do not fall to the ground. If they could stay as they were and not remind me that the season must change, this would ease my mind and hold off a cold creeping that culminates in summer, a season that stifles me, reminds me of the heartbreak that is sure to follow. Actually, that one has a lot to do with it, too, because we broke up in August. Wow. <laughs> yeah, man. I the, the book is, it gives me chills every time I read a new piece. It's kind of like, oh, how did I know this was, I don't know. It just makes me feel like it gives me affirmation that I'm I'm in the right vein of uh, of expression when it comes to dealing with my emotions. Man. And intuitive too. <laughs> that is deep stuff. It makes me think of Tupac in a way. Uh, Tupac is one of my favorite probably the reason I started writing to be honest. Just wow. the, the poetry, the the art, him as a speaker, his passion just yeah. he gave um the belief that you you know you didn't just have to be an athlete you know as a black male in america he gave me the the, the concept of being an artist being yeah. an orator being a poet and you know it was it is interesting to see how often he you know he lived a paranoid life and he talked about death and being murdered and not mm -hmm. living a long life and that ended up yes. being his outcome and it's so interesting to hear you write in January about what what literally came later in in a year, uh, yeah. in a way where you kind of prophesized and, and envisioned without really seeing it clearly, but you kind of saw this happening. Yeah, man, I, I believe like my higher power is close to me, and um, you know he's he's in a lot of what I do every day, and um, you know I, I I always feel like he's preparing me for the next the next adventure, the next great mountain, as we talked about earlier, the next great mountain to climb. And there's always a mountain to climb, right? There's always healing. There's always something that has to happen as a human being is something on this planet with a free will and the ability to, um, recognize what's wrong and what's right. Like it's never done. Like, you know, I know people who are looking for people without baggage, but good luck. You know, everybody's got something that has to continually be looked at. And as an alcoholic in recovery, like dealing with resentments, do you remember when I reached out to you? Um, yeah. It was maybe a couple of years ago. And I said, Hey, you know, I said some stuff to you. I was not proud about, and uh, I want to say, I'm sorry. And um, I had to, you know, when I was first, when I was newly sober, I was an angry guy. And, uh, you know, I picked a fight and I played the blame game and I was a, you know, victim hook was huge for me. And I learned a lot. And especially when 
I started taking my meds and going to therapy and, and dealing with my OCD and realizing it's not all about me. Um, but dealing with resentment like that, like that's major, like it's a constant thing. And, um, that's why I believe that human beings will, you know, always need to heal because every day there's new mercies, but there's new things to say sorry for as well. That's powerful. I, you, I do remember you, you messaged me right when you started your account and you apologized. Uh, the thing is, I don't even know what you were apologizing for. <laughs> yeah, I was, and I was so like thrown off. I was like, why well, I just got apologized. What do you, what do you do wrong? But you were just like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't, you know, like what even it's happened? Just, do you remember? I don't, I don't, I don't, I, we did not have an altercation, I don't think, but I felt like I felt like there were a group of writers that had wronged me <laughs> in my early days. And I was just like, and no one had done anything really. It was all me. And that's oh, the thing, okay. like, because when people apologize for stuff, there's always an interaction, but what people won't apologize for is how they acted without that person even knowing it. And mm-hmm. I, I felt that that was really important for me in my early sobriety to be able to go up to someone and say, you know what? I didn't treat you fairly in my mind and in my world. Um, and that was wrong. And, um, and I did that with a lot of people, um, you know, and, um, I could, I could go on forward and I could create stronger relationships because I knew that I didn't have anything in the back of my mind. There was no more victimhood anymore. There was no like blame game. Um, you know, cause often we, you know, as humans, we do that. We, we blame people inside our minds and we'll we'll uh, burn an effigy of them in our minds and and write them off and and uh and do all sorts of stuff without even that person knowing and it's important for you to be able to move on when you're healing and be able to deal with that and how you treated people without them even knowing damn you are deep brother i have two, <laughs> two i have two challenges for you yes sir you're the first person I've ever given a, a challenge on the Free Your Energy podcast. But listening, okay. uh, replaying this conversation over in my head, just the way I, I feel, I have the chills listening to you. Uh, I just want to say that I'm proud of you. I love you. I hope you continue Thanks, to to share everything you're doing because I know it's going to inspire and encourage uh, many people. But most importantly, I know that your three kids are going to be impacted in a positive way by the efforts you're making today. And I just hope you see that and that, you know, fatherhood is so important. It's so important that it sure is. kids have, uh, I think the word that's often used is strong, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to use a different word. Wise. Mm-hmm. I think kids need wise fathers. Uh, I'm a father now. My, my son, his name is Mason. He's a young guy. He looks just like me. And Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you, man. I, I want to be wise for him. Yeah. Um, wise enough to know when I make a mistake, you know, wise enough to hear him, to listen to him, to, you know, wise enough to be there for him, wise enough to know when to push him, when to hold him, you know, um, yeah. all the things that I know you're still trying to figure out. I know I'm going to be figuring it out for a long time myself. <laughs> so it, it is a, it is a journey that continues to change and it's like a curveball every day, but it is beautiful. And your child is going to be one blessed kid to have a parent like you, man. Thank Not you. a lot of parents are self-aware. And that's that is uh, that kid already has a major leg up on life. Yeah. And a lot of it is because of his mom. She is a loving, 
caring, selfless servant who, I mean, she was asking me about, you know, going back to work after, after, you know, you know, giving birth and she yeah. started crying. She started crying. Yeah. I'm like, why, why are you crying? She's like, I don't want to be away from him. <laughs> so, you know, just to, to have that love, to know that that love yeah. is there, you know, for me as his father and protector is just, it's just awesome. Beautiful. That's really all I could ask for. Absolutely. These are my Absolutely. two challenges to you. And okay. it's multi-layered and there's multi-purposes behind them. My first challenge to you is I challenge you to create more video content. The reason I yeah. say that is I've seen you do uh, your guitar playing, singing your songs. Thanks. But I think a lot of people can gain value out of you speaking. Oh, man. I've been thinking about this, actually. Uh, you're <laughs> I forgot about it with all this COVID stuff. And then uh, and then you come out of here and go, hey, hey, you should go and do that thing that you're thinking about doing. I, I, I think that is going to free you creatively to a whole new level. I'm if writing you... this down, by the way. Okay. I, I think you need to create some video content and you, you need to, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but you need to start talking. We need, we need to see you talking. I need right, to, brother. I need to be able to log in somewhere and see you talking. <laughs> okay, man, I'm going to do it. And then my other challenge is in, you know, this is something you can't force, but I want to see where you go with your art, your words. I see, I see you evolving. I want to see if that book is going to come back or if maybe a new one will be born, but I want to see it. And I like, to be, I like to be a part of it, man. Maybe send me an outline, send me a page, just yeah. send me, send me something. Let me, let me just know you're, you're working on that. You know, I don't want you to bury the, those ideas that you had, man. That, that novel sounds amazing. I promise you I won't. So I want to order one of your books. Where do, tell me how to do that. Well, uh, Amazon's the easiest way. Um, you can pop on Amazon, search for The Poetry Bandit or John Lupin. It's my uh, my writing name, uh, L-U-P-I-N, uh, J-O-N. And um, yeah, that's the easiest place to get all three. You can get them as a package. You could also send me a direct message if uh, if you're unsure where the easiest place. I know that not everybody has access to Amazon. So I have a few links of some places around the world that sell the books as well. Um, and once the bookstore is open, just pop in a Barnes and Noble. And if they don't have it, um, you can order it there too. If they don't have it, tell them they're crazy for not having it in stock. <laughs> exactly. For yeah. the people who are listening and they're like, okay, I need to follow this guy. I need to connect with this guy. How do they find you? Uh, on Instagram, um, uh, the handle is, uh, the underscore poetry bandit. Um, even if they just search for the poetry bandit, um, just find the guy with lots of followers and I have a lot of fakers out there. So it's always good to just double check which, which poetry bandit you're following. Um, or Facebook, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, same, same, uh, moniker, um, John Lupin, the poetry bandit. And I'm on Twitter as well, but I'm more, um, I let my goofy flag fly on it on Twitter. So uh, I don't post as much writing there as I as I do on Instagram and Facebook, but Instagram is probably the best place to find me. Let me make sure I follow you on Twitter. I love Twitter, by the way. Yeah, I Twitter. have. I haven't been able to master it. I just can't 
I can't, uh, I don't know if it's like I have to tweet something every hour or, or what I have not been able to figure it out. I think with Twitter, well, it's totally different than, than Instagram. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like you can't tweet a picture. It doesn't. It doesn't do the same as if you oh, tweeted uh, an actual tweet. I just followed you. Um, oh, thanks, brother. I've so I've looked at some analytics because I am a I'm a guy who does like to study like how different social media works because yeah, social media here. is essentially psychology, and I like the psychology of how things work and what people share and what they're into. So here's what I do on Twitter. What I do on Twitter is I honestly just share my thoughts. And yeah. I make them long form thoughts. I try to use I try to use all 280 available words, but I also um, like I, I get sales on there, too. So like the business side, really? Twitter works. Yeah, Twitter works as oh, well. Okay. Yeah, my following right now I have like twenty four thousand. So, you know, you can get sales on there as well if you have a good product. See, people on Twitter, they like they like words because the main yeah. content is words. So writers to me, all writers should be on Twitter. All of them. Yeah. There's a way that I can actually, I'm just thinking right now, I'm thinking out loud. There's, I'm using a new writing app. Now that some of my typewriters need work, I'm using a new typewriter app where I can actually select all, cut, paste, and I can just plop it right in there. Yep. Huh. There yep. we go. Put Boom. it right there. And I believe, you know, for anyone listening too, I believe that you should be putting, if you're going to put any content out, you should be putting it on multiple platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, I use, uh, so my, my Instagram and my Facebook are identical. They look the same, yeah, same. same content out. And then Twitter is a little different because I'm, I'm, I put different things on Twitter. I put the same things essentially, but I'm also tweeting my words and I, I do it whenever I feel like it because Twitter is a whenever you feel like it type of thing. So I may tweet 10 times in a day. I may tweet twice a day. Uh, and then I also do YouTube. I do YouTube as well. I probably do a video once a, once a week or once every two weeks. I'll, I do a YouTube video as well. You know, I have a YouTube channel and I started it and I was like, I'm going to do self-help videos on OCD. And I started that and then I stopped. <laughs> that actually be pretty helpful. I know I got to pick that back up, and um, and now with your encouragement, my first challenge, I think it's a great way to fire that channel back up. Perfect. Well, I love it, brother. We're gonna get you back on uh, the Free Your Energy podcast, hopefully uh, before the end of the year, maybe November, That'd December, be great. and yeah, that yeah. way we can we can stay up to date uh, with what you're doing and in your journey thus far, man. I, again, I appreciate you for opening up and just sharing, man. That vulnerability is powerful. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. A little poem in um, You Only Love Me which, When I'm Suffering. And it's a poem that Brene Brown shared as well because she preaches a lot on vulnerability. And it goes like this. Um, wear, your crown, wear your vulnerability like a crown, whether it's made of thorns or of wildflowers is up to you. And, um, you know, I've worn my vulnerability as both. And it helps. It doesn't matter what that crown is made of, as long as people can see it and you aren't ashamed of it. So vulnerability is is giving you some freedom, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, it's the key. It's it's a key to my sobriety. Absolutely, and living a happy life. Closing remarks. What is the the last thing you want to leave people with today? 
Um, you know, if you're struggling, um, what, it, it doesn't matter what you're struggling with. Um, you know, don't do it alone. Um, if I hadn't met people like yourself, uh, you know, a uh, few people that, uh, encouraged me to go to my recovery meeting. Um, you know, I don't know where I would be today, you know, but the key was I brought people in and I shared and it took it, it took some time, but, you know, opening up and becoming vulnerable was, was a key to survival. You know, I was, I was a meek sheep at one point before I could become a bold wolf. Um, you know, every, everybody that struggles, um, you got to find your people. Um, you know, I, I say this a lot to people in, in early recovery, you can't do it alone. Like you need someone to walk alongside you. Even if it's just one person, two people, it could be your mom, it could be your sister, it could be a brother, uh, it could be a best friend. But, you know, for me, it was someone else in recovery and, um, you know, someone who'd gone before me, someone who had figured some of it out and was able to pass on some of that knowledge. And so uh, I guess that's, that's, that's what I would want to leave somebody with, you know, don't, don't try and do it alone. There's, there's a reason why there are other people on this planet. Thank you.